For more than 40 years, Dr. David Jeremiah has faithfully preached God's Word. And as the world changes, how the message is delivered expands. Turning Point Plus was created as the next step in our digital broadcast ministry. And it's available instantly when you sign up to support Turning Point with an automatic monthly gift of any amount. Learn more and access more than 12,000 audio and video messages at turningpointplus.org. Imagine being so trusted by God that He rewards you with a glimpse of heaven. Then imagine the challenge of describing that experience in writing. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah profiles the Apostle John, the writer of Revelation and its firsthand account of the majesty of heavenly worship. From My Heart's Desire, here's David to introduce his message, Eternal Perspective. Well, I mentioned to you earlier in this series that uh, the hymn book of the New Testament is the book of Revelation. The hymn book of the Old Testament is the book of Psalms. Many people are really surprised to discover that this sometimes frightening book, which ends the New Testament scripture, is filled with the hymns of heaven. And uh, these are incredible. I mean, when you study them for that purpose, if you just, maybe you're a youth pastor, but also a minister of music in your church. Um, maybe you're just a singer in the choir or a soloist, you should get acquainted with the music of heaven because it's quite amazing. The antiphonal praise, the uh, doxologies, starting with two or three and then going to four and five, and ultimately there's the doxology of 11 in the New Testament book of Revelation. It's a wonderful book of praise and worship, and uh, I recommend it. And today and tomorrow we're going to talk a little bit about the perspective of eternity when it comes to worship. Hey, friends, we are clear at the end of our opportunity to tell you about two or three things. First of all, um, we have some rallies coming up. One is now a week away, October the 6th. We're going to be in Raleigh, North Carolina at the PNC Arena. Still time for you to get your tickets, but you must do it by going to davidjeremiah.org slash tours. There you will find a way for you to get the tickets you need, and they're free, but you need to have a ticket to come. Thursday, October the 13th, a week from that event, we'll be in Orlando, Florida at the Amway Center. Same goes. Then Thursday, October the 20th, Greenville, South Carolina, and the Bon Secours Wellness Arena. And then Friday, November the 11th, in Buffalo, New York, at the Key Bank Center. All of these events are they're for you. We come to your community to bring Turning Point right into your heart, right into your space. And we worship the Lord and we celebrate together. It is, um, it's an amazing experience that's not paralleled by a lot of the other things we do. So I want you to come. I hope you make a special effort to come bring a friend with you. We always share the gospel. We always give an invitation. People come to Christ. People get right with God. It's a tremendous thing. But these dates are right upon us now, so you need to move quickly and get your tickets and plan to be with us. We begin now with our uh, discussion of eternal perspective from the book of Revelation. Let's open our Bibles and our hearts as we move to the end of this wonderful series on worship. Paul Azinger was at the top of his profession, and that profession was a pretty desirable one. Those of you who live in the sports world know that he's a PGA golfer. But at the age of 33, Paul Azinger faced his greatest crisis. He was diagnosed with cancer. 
Azinger had won a PGA championship and held the championship trophies from 10 PGA tournaments. And all he could think about when cancer struck was, why this? Why now? Why me? In his book that he wrote about this experience, he said, a genuine feeling of fear came over me. I could die from cancer. Then another reality hit me even harder, he wrote. I'm going to die eventually anyway, whether from cancer or something else. It's just a question of when. Everything I had accomplished in golf became rather meaningless to me. All I wanted to do was to live. Azinger had a close friend during that time named Larry Moody, and I happen to know Larry Moody. He's a wonderful man of God. He was leading a Bible study for golfers on the tour, and Moody had made a statement that completely changed Azinger's paradigm of life and death. He said, Zinger, we're not in the land of living, heading for the land of dying. We're in the land of dying, heading for the land of the living. Paul Azinger said he had never thought about that before, not even close. And Moody's statement caused him to rethink his entire approach to life. And he submitted to chemotherapy and he worked through his recovery. And eventually he returned to the PGA Tour. He was playing golf again, just as he had before. But his perspective was no longer a temporal one. Everything about his life was changed. He wrote, I've made a lot of money since then since I've been on the tour and I've won a lot of tournaments but that happiness is always temporary the only way you'll ever have true contentment is in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ I'm not saying that nothing ever bothers me and I'm not saying that I don't have problems but listen to this I feel like I have found the answer to the six-foot hole <laughs> and he's not talking about the green on a golf course most of us live under the enduring illusion that this earth where we now hold forth is our home, our ultimate place of abode. This land that's filled with pain and illusions and difficulty. We know it's not much when we stop and think about it, but it's home. And we don't know much about the other world, so we don't talk about it very much. We just think about it as a mystery, not nearly as close to reality as the world in which we live. But we should know. We devote our lives to studying God's Word and worshiping Him and anticipating eternity in His presence. We should know that this life is only a brief prelude, a puny grain of sand compared to the rest of eternity where we will be with God forever and ever if we know His Son, Jesus Christ, where we will be somewhere forever and ever no matter who we are or where we live on this earth. I've been, as you know, where Azinger was. Now, I'm not eager to leave the ministry God has given me on this earth, but I have a deeper appreciation and more eager anticipation of the joys that are still out there in store for us. Having looked into the face of eternity through so many anxious moments, I now know that I am better able to possess this frame of mind that enables me to appreciate God's outlook on this life and in the life that is to come. I would never volunteer to experience a serious illness. None of us would. But looking back on it from my perspective, I sort of agree with Zinger. <laughs> There's a perspective that comes from seeing eternity in a real way. 
that changes your life here forever. You can never be the same. Well, we've been talking about worship, and we talked about earlier in one of our messages, the book of Revelation that gives us a picture of eternity. And we watched John the apostle as he stood at the doorway, and we actually read a description of what he saw. I think in order for us to understand how important John's vision of the future is and how important that perspective is to our own personal worship, we have to go back and review just a little bit about John's life. He isn't just the writer of the book of Revelation. As you know, he was one of the apostles, one of the disciples. He was a part of the inner circle on whom Jesus often called for special tasks. For instance, John was one of the disciples who was present in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Lord had asked him to pray while he went yonder and wrestled with Almighty God. Matthew 26 says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. While most of the disciples hid, John was at the foot of the cross when Jesus asked him to take care of his mother. John the apostle, who was the writer of the book of Revelation, was the only apostle left at the crucifixion of Jesus. He stood at the foot of the cross. And we read about it in John chapter 19, where the scripture says, Now there stood at the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, we know that's John standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, John, that disciple, took her to his own home. John had been with the Lord Jesus in the hour of Gethsemane. He was the one to whom the Lord entrusted his mother when Jesus died on the cross. And you remember that it was John who beat Peter to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. In fact, John 20 says this, Therefore Peter went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. The beloved disciple, or as John liked to call himself, the disciple that Jesus loved, he's often depicted as a gentle and warm person. He's called the apostle of love. Remember, he was given the title with his brother James as the sons of thunder. Doesn't sound like it was gentle all the time. Mark chapter 3 gives us this. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom Jesus gave the name Boanerges, which is sons of thunder. Why not? It was John who stood at the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17 tells us that John was there when Jesus revealed himself. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up onto a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And we're told later that John had the privilege of standing and watching Jesus as he ascended into heaven. And when he had spoken these things, says Acts, while they watched, Jesus was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. But it was John and John alone, not Peter, James, and John, not even Peter and James. It was John and John alone who was invited to take a look into heaven and view the great scene of praise and worship that was going on there, which we will participate in someday. God trusted John alone with that vision. John was a man who had some great opportunities in his life. 
God trusted him with a great deal, and he wrote to us about his experiences. But I think it's important to know also that while John was someone who had great opportunities, he also faced some great problems and obstacles in his life. It is true that he was privileged to share many intimate moments with the Lord, and that he was entrusted as the only apostle to be able to look into heaven. But John was also one who suffered from great heartache. I want to say that right now because some of you might think the only ones who can worship are those who are privileged and caught up to be close to the Lord and experience the Lord. But John's greatest experience of worship did not take place in the privileged circle of a few close friends of Jesus. His greatest privilege of worship took place when he was on the Isle of Patmos. What was he doing there? He had been exiled there because of his faith. He was sent there to die as a lonely apostle because he had shown allegiance to Lord Jesus Christ as his savior, cut off from his friends. During a terrible crisis in the history of the early church, we read about it in Revelation chapter one where John introduces the book and he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Putting that into our own language, men and women, he was just sent there. It was a prison. He was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. From day to day, John had to wonder whether his friends were still alive or whether the Roman Emperor Domitian had captured them and executed them as he had done so many Christians that John knew about. Jesus had lived and bled and died for the church, and now the church was under daily attack by the empire. And this brought John so much pain which is one of the reasons I believe in the beginning of the book of Revelation, he started by writing individual letters to the churches he was acquainted with, seven of them in total, in order to instruct them during this time of great persecution that was happening in the Roman Empire. He did not have any illusions about what he had faced. Jesus had told John that he was going to face some difficult days. Yes, he was privileged to be with Jesus in moments of glory, but Jesus didn't hide from him the truth about what he was to face in the future. Matthew chapter 20, the Lord Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not for me to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. What Jesus was saying when he talked about them drinking the cup, he was talking about drinking the cup of sorrow that Jesus would to drink. He meant martyrdom. And in the meantime, John faced these trials of aging. I like to imagine when I read the Bible, I don't know if you do that, I like to think about the passages and then wonder what it was really like. I wonder what it was like for John on the Isle of Patmos, an aging man, the last disciple still alive, facing the normal problems that you face as you get older with feebleness and the inability to get around as he used to, hearing about his friends who were succumbing so violently to the persecution against the church, really just waiting out his life in exile. All of us do that in a certain way. Paul describes us as citizens of another world. Really, we're just waiting out the time when we can go back and be a part of the citizenship that is truly ours in heaven. Paul and Peter both tell us that we're pilgrims and strangers down here. So maybe John was thinking about that as he was on the island. We're all in that sense, but I'm certain John felt his alienation as well. He was human, and more and more with each passing day, he had borne witness to the tragedy, the crucifixion, 
the resurrection, now in his solitude, in his exile, the world seemed to him to be dim indeed and slipping through his fingers until one day something happened, happened to John in his old age. I like to think about the fact that God can reserve the very best for you until you are old. You may think it's all over. You may think all of the good days are past. But I like to think about this more and more each day and each year as it passes by, that God may still have the best for me someday in the future. And I'm looking forward to that. I know ultimately he does. But I mean even here in this life. And isn't it interesting that John went through all of those wonderful experiences. I mean, how many of us would be excited about being there on the day of transfiguration and seeing the Lord revealed or being there to see his resurrection as one of the first or being entrusted with the care of his mother. Can you imagine the joy that must have been in John's heart because of that? Those all happen in his early life, but they don't hold a candle to what's about to happen to him in the last days he spent on this earth. The open door in John's life recorded for us in the book of Revelation. Suddenly the light of heaven pierced through a crack in the door that hadn't been there a moment before. And the voice told him that he would be allowed to enter, that John would boldly go where no man had ever gone before. He would stand at the threshold of eternity and record what he saw so that countless generations yet unborn could vicariously glimpse the same wonders that John glimpsed as he writes about them and we see them through his eyes. One moment the elderly John might have been lamenting his rheumatism. He might have felt the aches and pains in his joints or he may have been tossing and turning through another restless night. His thoughts may have been on absent friends as they might face trial or prison. Perhaps he was reliving the wonderful days of Jesus' physical presence and wishing that time hadn't passed so quickly. If he was anything like you and me, John was immersed in the disappointments of this world and the land of the dead. And then when the door was suddenly opened, John walked through the portal and he began to see a whole different picture. He saw eternity. He saw life through an eternal perspective. When he looked through that open door, this is what he saw from the book of Revelation and the fourth chapter. Now let's just remember, I've tried to get the setting where John is when this happens. And he's old and tired and discouraged and the Lord gives him a glimpse of heaven and this is how he describes it. Read it out loud together. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, 
The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Amen. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine what John thought when he saw what we just read on the Isle of Patmos, discouraged, wondering if God had forgotten him, and God gave him a view of heaven as it will be forever and ever as he looked through the open door. I challenge you to capture in your imagination the sights John was allowed to see. For that's why they're recorded in the Bible. This is just not a prophecy text. The Lamb of God bids us to come and worship. And he wants us to stand before his throne and sing praises and to experience the liberation that comes when a divine perspective takes root within us. Stop for a moment and think, all of the craziness that's going on in our world today, economic downturn, the stock market in trouble, war on every hand, terrorism at the door. And you know what I thought about when I read this? I don't know if you saw this. He looked and he saw a throne set in heaven and somebody was on the throne. Amen. You know, the world's coming unglued, but God's still on the throne. When you begin to see life through the open door of heaven, everything is touched and changed. And then you begin to worship, not because you're in a good mood or a bad mood. You begin to worship not because of this style or that style. You begin to worship not because you're in church or out of church, but because you have a picture of who God is in his greatness and majesty. And how can you not worship him? The great work of humanity, as you study the history of the Bible is the work of worship and praise. Did you know that we as Christians do three things in the church, three major things? We preach, we pray, and we praise. Those are the three main things we do. But only one of them is going to survive to heaven. Did you know that? I'm ashamed to tell you, and I'm worried a little bit about it, frankly. There isn't going to be any preaching in heaven. Some of you are going to say, Amen. There won't be any preaching in heaven because the Bible says we're going to know everything that we need to know. We're going to be knowing as we're known. We'll have perfect knowledge of who God is. There won't be any praying in heaven because we will already have everything that we desire from God. But the Bible says there's going to be praise in heaven. And it's going to occupy us for eternity. You know what? If that's something that's going to be ours for eternity, it ought to be something pretty important to us down here, don't you think? We ought to come to church with a spirit of praise and worship. We ought to start each day with a spirit of worship and prayer. The earth grows strangely dim with eternity's values in view, says the chorus. That ought to be our heart as well. So the invitation I want to give you to this new perspective, added to the invitation of this new power, 
is that when you attain the perspective of heaven, you begin to be aware of the infinite difference between the eternal and the temporal. Temporal matters weigh us down, but in light of eternity, they're small indeed. And you know, the other good thing about that is the eternal matters lift us up. Uh, temporal matters pull us down. And it, what was it someone said? We're either headed toward our reward or we're headed away from it. And I hope you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If you are, you're headed toward eternal joy. And the perspective of heaven helps a lot here on this earth. So we have one more program on the subject of worship, and that'll be tomorrow on Friday. Um, as I've mentioned before, a lot of things happening here at Turning Point that kind of come to a head at the end of September, beginning of October. If you haven't already ordered your calendar, that's the resource for the month of September, and that resource goes away after tomorrow. You don't want to miss the opportunity of having this beautiful calendar in your home. It's yours for a gift of any size during this month. Send your gift and say, please send me the calendar, and it will be on its way. Uh, the pre-sale for the new book, World of the End is also in process. Look that up on the website. It'll give you all the details you need. A lot of events coming up that require tickets. Friends, if you go to davidjeremiah.org, you'll see all of this and be able to review it. I encourage you to do it. But most of all, I encourage you to join us tomorrow on this good station for the next edition of Turning Point. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, My Heart's Desire, please visit our website. There you will also find two free ways to help you stay connected our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, be sure to ask for your copy of our 14-month calendar for 2023, Moving Mountains, filled with inspiring scriptures and images to encourage you in your walk. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in several handsome cover options. Get the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we conclude the series, My Heart's Desire, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. Benjamin Ryrie retired as a missionary with the China Inland Mission at the age of 70. When he was 80, he began learning New Testament Greek and became proficient in the language. At age 90, he enrolled in a refresher Greek course at a Toronto seminary. And at age 100, 
he carried a well-worn Greek dictionary in his pocket to study while commuting. I think we could safely call Mr. Ryrie a lifelong learner, and we should all follow his example. As good stewards of God's gift of the human mind, it's possible to learn new things every day, especially about God through His Word. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover something new about God on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.